Hey, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 39 on Pixar. And Pixar has captured the imaginations and hearts of audiences for the last 25 years. They've crafted incredibly unique stories and have created memorable characters we can't help but love. Every time you go to see a Pixar film, you're going to laugh. You're probably going to cry. You'll be blown away by the incredible animation that the studio has mastered as well. Pixar changed animation forever. Each one of their films resonate to audiences in different ways, and they always have profound emotional impacts on everyone. And I, I think everyone has an intense love for Pixar movies. Yeah, I don't think people realize how popular Pixar is because when you log into Disney+, Plus, Pixar is listed before Marvel and Star Wars, which is blew my mind when, when I found that out, which is insane because the power of Pixar is real. Pixar films have grossed over $14 billion at the box office, which is absurd. Feature films produced by Pixar have won numerous awards, including 16 Academy Awards, 10 Golden Globes, and 11 Grammys. And I think what Pixar did, which changed the landscape of people liking animated films, is that with Pixar movies, they get a lot of just adults going to see the movies, not parents with kids. A lot of older people, a lot of adults are going to see these movies because they love them, because they resonate just as much with uh, adults and older people as they do with kids. Absolutely. The relatability is an incredibly enticing factor for a lot of the films. And obviously you can say that some of their movies are more relatable to adults and obviously some are more relatable to children, but they do a great job of finding that balance to, to entertain audiences of all shapes and sizes and ages and, and variations and demographic backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. In this episode, we're going to talk about the history of Pixar and briefly go over their first 10 films. They've made 22 feature films total and a bunch of short films, so we'll probably do a part two on this, and we'll obviously do uh, franchise episodes on Pixar movies. There's just too many to do today. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. This episode was also brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. If you like our podcast and our content, the best thing you can do to support us is subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and share us with your movie friends, your family members. We know you got those movie buds out there. Let them know that there's an awesome new podcast for them to check out. We're still only like four and a half months old, so we're still pretty new. Hit that subscribe button. Hit that bell button. The likes, notifications, let's go. Let's go. Leaving a five-star review is incredibly beneficial. I know every show asks for this, but it really helps us get seen by new people, and those written reviews are very helpful and really touch our hearts whenever we read them. Make sure to enter the contest we have going on right now for MoviePosters.com. It's a special edition Star Wars poster. It's worth $150. You get to enter the contest if you want to win it. They sent us this amazing retro Star Wars poster. It's uh, for the 48th anniversary. It looks so cool. I want this poster, but... Conflict of interest. Yeah, So, uh, but we're giving it away for free. Check out our giveaway video to learn the contest rules to enter that contest. We also have a Patreon where you can support us monthly, where members get special perks like personalized videos, a special message, sneak peeks at episodes, and top-tier members get a monthly shout-out on the podcast to be immortalized forever. We're using the Patreon money to improve our set. We like we just bought these new microphones. I don't know if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see our new wood walls. It's real wood. New, this real time wood. used to be vinyl. Now it's real. We're going to get more wood for behind us, and then we're going to add more props and things to decorate the set. So all this money is being put to great use for our podcast. And as always, spoilers are abound. Pixar obviously changed animation forever in the landscape of cinema, 
So why do we love animation so much, whether it be cartoons, computer animation? Animation is one of our oldest forms of modern storytelling. The first cartoon ever made was in 1908 called Phantasma Jury. It's a very cute little stick figure animation, but it still has all the elements in modern animation storytelling. It has a simple story, uh, groundbreaking visuals, humor, and it has the heart of a human soul. I think animated films uh, bring you back to your childhood, and for kids, it's easy for them to relate to talking animals or talking objects. And then for adults, when you watch an animated film, a good one like Pixar or some of the classic Disney films, it's very nostalgic. Um, it reminds you of when you watched those when you were a kid for the first time, like uh, watching Aladdin or The Lion King always brings me back to being like five or six years old watching it on VHS. And then the new newest generation of animated films, they are more accessible now to adults than the older ones were. So uh, it brings that nostalgic factor while watching a new story unfold. Yeah, I always feel like a little kid, even though we watched Coco the other day and I felt like a child watching it because it really brings you back to that feeling of, of childlike an imagination and, and wonder and awe. And animation is the ultimate expression of imagination where the impossible becomes possible. There are no limitations. When it comes to animated stories, you can invent anything you want. Characters can be whatever they want to be and do whatever the animators want them to do. Yeah, and there's unlimited uh, possibilities and potential for what you want to create in an animated film. And we grew up watching S Saturday morning cartoons like Looney Tunes and stuff. And so we had a deep connection to cartoons. Yeah, they've always been a part of our life since we were kids, especially even Nickelodeon and Disney. Mm -hmm. So all these cartoons, we grew up constantly Saturday mornings, always watching cartoons. After school. And animated movies are generally very positive. They have they end on high notes, like kind of like classic Hollywood endings. Anime offers a wide range of genres, complexities, and emotions that we won't really discuss in this episode. And anime films offer much darker themes and adult themes compared to films like Pixar and DreamWorks. DreamWorks and Pixar, the movies are made for everyone to enjoy. So a pair of parents can bring their kids to watch the film and everyone can get something from the movie so the parents aren't bored watching a kid's movie. Uh, there's more depth to it than, than the older animated films. In Pixar, not only have they changed the game in terms of films with feature-length computer animation films, but they've also improved special effects in live-action films and computer animated graphics and TV shows and video games as well. Modern kids' shows today are computer animation. They're not cartoons anymore. Video games graphics are absolutely stunning and absurd today. I mean, have you ever seen the NBA 2K20, like what that's going to look like and what it looks like, or just any first-person shooter, the storylines, they look like movies. They look like Pixar films. Yeah, and the reason for that is because when Pixar was founded, it was founded in... Um, started up by a group of artists and a group of scientists. The creatives were working with the people who were writing code in discovering new forms of how to use a computer and uh, making new programs and writing software. So uh, these two uh, completely different uh, industries came together to create Pixar, and I think that's uh, what set the stage for what they became. Yeah, I'm sure computer animation would have taken off and found a way at some point in the history of film, but you can argue it was inevitable, but Pixar's vision and the gambles they took forced this new medium into our lives. It's a similar story to talkies in the silent film era where people were hesitant to try talkies out and actually record audio of actors on, on set and, and make movies that you can hear because they thought that silent film was the ultimate medium. But same thing with Pixar and computer graphic animation. They were kind of frowned upon and not many people were willing to take the chance on computer graphics and thought that cartoon animation and hand-drawn illustrations were the only thing that you could do in cinema. 
This episode was also brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over the technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. And Manscaped has been so awesome to work with. Thank you so much to Kyle for sending us all this fantastic equipment. Uh, they sent us their lawnmower, which is so cool. It's It's got a light on it. It's waterproof. You can use it in the shower. They sent us a ton of different deodorants and odorizers and T-shirts, underwear, cologne, everything you can think of. Every, pretty much every, everything on their site they sent us, and it's all fantastic stuff. Holiday season is around the corner. I'm telling you, if you got a man in your life, boyfriend, brother, this is the gift to get them. Something from Manscaped. This is something we actually want and need, especially with lockdowns and quarantines. We're home a lot, and, you know, we got to make sure we take care of some stuff. Grooming's a part of life, so definitely hop on manscaped.com. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Use it this holiday season. I'm telling you guys, this is the perfect gift. A lot of the naysayers didn't understand it. And they didn't believe in it, and they didn't think that audiences would understand it. And uh, nobody believed in Pixar when it first started. And John Lasseter, John Lasseter, one of the founders of Pixar, was an animator at Disney, and he uh, was w- the first person to uh, suggest using computer anim- animations to Disney. And he and his partner even made a short film, and Disney watched it and rejected it, and they thought that it would be... A uh, horrible thing to pursue, and they actually fired him. They let him go for this, and then this is uh, how Pixar became to be because Lasseter helped formed Pixar with a group of other animators. Yeah, and there's a great documentary called the the Pixar Story on Netflix to get a background on how this all started. And like you said, it's John Lasseter, Ed Catmull, and Steve Jobs were the the main trio that helped this company start. And Ed Catmull was on the software side and the This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply computer graphics side john lasseter was the animator and illustrator and and then steve jobs was was the money and the investor and my god that guy took two huge gambles and paid off incredibly well because of it yeah steve jobs actually made his first billion dollars because of pixar not because of apple he was the main investor of pixar for a long time and he was the majority stakeholder for years and the money made off of pixar from their first several movies he pocketed most of it 
and he became a billionaire in the process. Yeah, he was the only investor to invest in Pixar at the time when they were looking for, for money, and he invested $10 million in the company. And John Lasseter, being basically the, the pioneer of this entire vision, has since been forced to step down to Pixar due to sexual misconduct accusations, and he now runs Skydance's animation department, which is obviously a questionable call on Skydance, but obviously the things that he is... Uh, supposed to have done at Pixar Studios is is terrible, and you you wish that kind of conduct doesn't happen in businesses. But you can't tell the story of Pixar without John Lasseter, so we have to talk about him, and we're, we're not going to just erase him from the history of the studio. The thing with Pixar is they were the small company that were making things on spec. Yeah, one of the major catalysts for the creation of this computer animation department at Walt Disney Studios was... Uh, they screened Tron for the animators at the company. And at the time, Tron, I think, was one of the very first feature films to feature any kind of like computer graphic animation. And they used a lot of it in that movie. If you've ever seen the original one with uh, Jeff Bridges, super young in that movie. It's very cool. And it's <laughs> yeah. a visually stunning film. And it, you never seen anything like it at the time. And still, it's incredibly unique the way they shot it. And mm-hmm. It's incredible. And they realized that this, some of the people at Walt Disney Studios realized that this was a future and there was... Uh, promise to this and a lot of potential and John Lasseter was one of the only people at Disney willing to willing to pursue this avenue of graphic computer graphic animation films and he made his first little short film called The Brave Little Toaster which he showed the head of Walt Disney and once he showed it to them after he finished this project he was fired and let go from Walt Disney at first this was a a horrible time for him but then uh, eventually he he formed Pixar with several other animators who also wanted to pursue this new avenue of animation. And he formed this little new company with Ed Catmull, who wanted to be an animator and instead follow computer animation. And and he made a short 3D animation film that was the first ever featured in a movie, and it was showed on a screen in a science fiction film. It was a a CGI hand. Ed was hired by NYIT to develop tools and software for computer animation, drawing and painting directly onto a computer. And Ed Catmull helped create these tools and programs initially in the beginning stages of computer animation to help artists and animators and put their ideas into computer animation. And then Lasseter, he, he couldn't really find too much work after he got let go of Walt Disney, but Ed Catmull got hired immediately by George Lucas for Lucasfilms to develop these new techniques and editing softwares and editing equipment for Lucasfilm's special effects and digital it, editing. Yeah, and they obviously, he... He ran to Laster and hired Laster immediately for Lucasfilms. And this is where they started to develop more of that software for computer animation. And this is, was where the first major digital effects in a live-action film were used, where the stained glass man from the young Sherlock Holmes, which got an Academy Award nomination for this scene, basically, this digital stained glass man was created by this department of visual effects and computer animation at Lucasfilm. And this had never been done before computer-generated character within a live-action scene with a, a real person acting alongside of it. Then Lucasfilm had these people and these editors and animators and com- computer scientists develop the Pixar image computer, which was used mostly for, in the medical field and satellite markets, but Pixar eventually used it and formed um, their company, Pixar, after getting investment from Steve Jobs. It's pretty amazing because at this point, Pixar was just a, a handful of animators and, and software engineers who were working together in like a couple of rooms in a small studio and they were just producing these short films that they were submitting 
and they were trying to get recognition, and they were making everything on speculation, and they were honing their crafts and improving and and learning and and writing new software. And so as the years um, went on, they got better at their crafts. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one site to get your movie posters, has been for years, and they're supporting all of our giveaway contests, especially this limited edition Star Wars movie poster contest. Definitely get into that and enter your name and information so that you can get a chance to win this awesome poster. MoviePosters.com has great options for original designs, framing, backlight, canvas, and even plaque designs. In case you don't win any of our contests, use Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today at MoviePosters.com. Without Steve Jobs, none of it would have been possible, just like without John Lasser at Catmull, because Steve Jobs, he saw the passion and vision that all these artists and creators had, and they developed their first computer-animated short film of Luxo Jr., The Lamp, which is the iconic Pixar logo in 1987. It was the first ever computer animated film nominated for an Academy Award. And I love this short because it shows the soul of pretty much every Pixar movie in this little short film. The innocence, the beauty of the animation, the graphics, the humor. And it also shows uh, the perspective of the animators who work on desks and they work all night. And there's a desk lamp keeping a light shining on their projects. And then they started making these commercials to help pay the bills. We saw a bunch of them growing up. And Tin Toy was a short film that brought children's toys to life, which obviously would be a precursor to Toy Story. Um, Pixar again, Pixar began to again collaborate with Walt Disney, and they combined computer and hand-drawn illustrations for films. And then in 1993, they did the computer graphic imaging for Jurassic Park. And that won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. But the biggest problem with Pixar and Steve Jobs' investment in it is they were losing money. They were barely keeping the lights on. Jobs was losing $1 million a year. They were just trying to buy time because Jobs had an, a long-term outlook on this company. He really saw the potential. And Disney wanted John Lasseter to come be a director, but John Lasseter turned that down and decided to stay with Pixar. And that's where they developed the idea for Toy Story, which is the first feature film in Pixar's filmography. And Toy Story began as, I think it was a six-minute short story idea, which turned into 30 minutes and which turned into a feature-length film. And they pitched this to Disney, and Disney greenlit it. And now this gave Pixar the ability to produce their first feature-length film, which would keep the lights on. A really cool, fun fact about all of the Pixar movies is that sprinkled within every single Pixar movie are is the sequence A113. This number can be seen on every single Pixar film, and it relates to the class number in which all of the Pixar found, founders, the animators who made the first uh, films, they studied at CalArts in this classroom number, they studied animation. And so it's a calling card to, to that classroom that helped, helped build Pixar. And before we get into the filmography, I just want to talk about the astounding progress that Pixar and obviously all other computer animation studios have made in their films, in their animation, not just from story, but the, the graphics alone. And Pixar has been doing this amazing technique in the last like five years where they're, they're creating virtual cameras inside their films and the application of actual cine cinematography elements in digital worlds. And they're taking the practical limitations of real-life filmmaking and using those elements to create their films now. And uh, obviously Pixar has been aware of, or all animated films are aware of lighting and reflection and, and um, framing and rule of two-thirds, wide shots, close-ups, all that and everything. But Pixar has been incorporating the use of these virtual cinema cameras and lenses in their films, and they hire actual cinematographers now. And 
Their two most recent directors of photography are Patrick Lynn and Daniel Feinberg, and they've really given a brand new aesthetic to Pixar films that didn't really exist before like 2015, 2014. And with these new practical elements, they're developing software and imaging with wide lenses, telephoto lenses, shallow depths of field, low angle, high angle, handheld shots, even split diopter shots, which uh, is achieved in the real world with a glass attachment on the lens. This is a practical real life effect that they're achieving in a digital world and a digital plane. And it's, there's an absolutely stunning example of this in Toy Story 4 with the doll in the beginning of the film that's talking to Forky. Inside Out is full of all sorts of shaky, handheld-looking shots despite it being an animated film. And it gives us this real human touch to the filmmaking in a way that they're achieving these real-life effects is basically camera motion capture where, similar to how a lot of actors are filmed in motion capture for animation like Andy Serkis and Planet of the Apes or Josh Brolin as Thanos, Pixar is creating motion capture of camera movements, and this brings that human touch to animation, making it something more than just a Pixar movie and computer graphic animation. Yeah, I think I noticed this first when I saw Coco, and like you said with the lenses and the depths of field and the changing, but the camera movements in that movie feels like it's on a dolly track half the time or a steady cam, and so it's really astounding where they they applied the process and production of filmmaking into their computer software. It's pretty fascinating. They also model very specific lenses for their animation depending on the scenes and attributes and characteristics of those lenses in the shot. And this is a testament to Pixar. As they make every film, they they push the boundaries of what they can do and they create new technologies like that. And I think that's happened with every single film. And I think the biggest advancements they've made were first uh, textures, uh, making hair, being able to create create wet surfaces and wet characters and realistic water, creating crowds. Um, and I think most most importantly, creating beautiful lighting, whereas if you watch the first few Pixar movies, you never really see where the light's coming from. Generally, light is coming from either the ceiling or from a, a window. Everything's pretty well lit, too. Yeah, everything's well lit. And so as they developed technologies, they were able to make lighting more realistic, uh, more subtle. They're, they began showing lights in the scenes, so they what's called practical lighting, where you can actually see the light that is lighting a room, whether it be a lamp or a fluorescent. What You can actually see what's producing the light next with the characters. And they've also created beautiful images where they're, they're, shooting, they're filming scenes with only one light on characters or in a room, and you can really see um, how the, the realistic way that light travels um, is is comparable to what we see now in real life. It kind of like glows a room everywhere mm. inside and like in, in the air rather than just reflecting on yeah. a wall. If there's a candle lit on a table, it really has just the same uh, realistic limitations that a candle in real life has. And I think they've elevated the, the realism of their lighting. And I think it's at their peak right now. I think it first started with, I would say, The Incredibles. And it, it improved with Ratatouille. And then uh, with Toy Story 4... It's just absolutely stunning what they've been able to do now with their lighting. Yeah, and in Toy Story 4, Pixar created the first animated film with a 2.39 to 1 aspect ratio, giving the team the ability to model anamorphic lenses. And anamorphic lenses stretch the image and allow a higher quality image by capturing twice the information horizontally than a normal spherical lens with a little bit of a distorted look. And anamorphic lenses create a very shallow depth of field which you can see a lot in toy story 4 yeah filmmakers like chris nolan and tarantino only use anamorphic and it produces that very wide screen aspect ratio and it was never really done with animated films at all because they didn't see the they didn't have the 
the need for it. But now that they have this amazing uh, camera technology within the software, they can put it to use. The most important part of uh, Pixar movies and why they are so successful and also so loved and revered is because of the characters. All these films, they have memorable characters that you grow to love and it's it's the the characters are timeless now and pixar developed this story structure where it doesn't happen in every film but most of the pixar movies have the structure of having two leads in the film and these two lead characters are very different from one another um, but they both have a goal they have a shared goal and buzz and woody and toy story sully and mike and monsters inc marlin and dory and finding nemo wally and evie and wally Remy and Alfredo in Ratatouille, Carl and Russell and Up, Miguel and Hector in Coco, Ian and Barley in Onward. So there's this structure they have where they typically, for most of their films, they have these two characters who lead the film. Uh, one last thing about Pixar movies is uh, they have an uncanny ability to, to hire perfect uh, musical composers for their films. Every score for a Pixar film is fantastic, uh, unique, and fits the, the film perfectly. And composers like Michael Giacchino, Thomas Newman, and Randy Newman are the regulars of Pixar. And there are a few others, but the music in, in Pixar movies is second to none. Let's now get into the filmography of Pixar and going over their first 10 films, which begins with Toy Story and ends with Up. Toy Story was released in 1995, directed by John Lasseter, written by John Lasseter and about seven other people, <laughs> including Joss Whedon, fun fact. And many of the future directors of Pixar, including Pete Docter, Andrew Stanton, Woody, a cowboy doll who belongs to a little boy named Andy, feels threatened by the arrival of a new toy who calls himself Buzz Lightyear. In order to secure his position as Andy's favorite toy, Woody feels that it is his mission to get rid of the spaceman. Toy Story had a budget of $30 million and grossed $365 million worldwide. The film stars Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, Don Rickles, Jim Varney, Wallace Shawn, Annie Potts, and John Morris. Toy Story was a perfect choice uh, for their first film because at this point in time, they obviously had great limitations on their animation. They couldn't make humans very well. They couldn't do hair. They couldn't do intense, complicated fabrics and textures. They couldn't do moisture. And so they were limited. But with having toys, you have characters who have very smooth surfaces, can't really move in complicated ways. They're restricted by the way they're designed. And so I think that Toy Story was the best possible choice for their first film. Yeah, this movie changed cinema and film as we know it, being the first ever computer animated feature film. Not only was it a glimpse at this new technology, but it's also a perfect film. Although uh, the animation is the most primitive in Pixar's history, and it has a pretty simple storyline of all of the Toy Stories, the original Toy Story, to me, is still the best one. And every time I watch a Pixar film, I feel all the emotions that harken me back to Toy Story, the original one. And it feels like all these other Pixar movies are trying to recreate the, the feelings that you get from the original Toy Story. And the concept itself is genius. The idea that toys are alive and come to life once they're alone without humans. Because that is what every single child imagines when they're playing with them. It seems like such an obvious concept for a story, yet it's so genius. It's the, They're the perfect kinds of things and objects for kids to relate to. Because kids play with toys. This film actually had a very problematic production where the initial story idea was not very good. And Disney actually rejected it after it was pitched to them and they 
put a red light on the production. And after this, the Pixar animators and story um, creators spent two weeks reformulating the story and they turned it into the Toy Story we now know. Yeah, the original Woody was like kind of an asshole and it was a very negative tone throughout the entire film. It yeah, just he, didn't work. He was very snarky. Woody was very mean and he was always trying to get rid of Buzz because Buzz was the new favorite toy. And also, Woody was originally uh, supposed to be a ventriloquist doll, so he was much larger than Buzz originally and Buzz was tiny compared to him. And these these original concepts, they just did not work for the film at all. And they had to start from square one after they were uh, turned down by Disney. But eventually, Toy Story was a massive success, and it paved the way for this new industry. And Lasseter actually received a special achievement Oscar for creating the first computer animation film. And it led to a big problem with Pixar where, yes, they made this amazing, successful box office hit, uh, critically acclaimed film, computer animation, setting up the future. But Disney owned all the merchandising rights to Pixar, so they were basically screwed, and they just had to count on always making a, a big hit or else they just go under. And so Pixar was forced to go public, became the highest IPO that year, and raised $132 million and offered to extend the contract with Disney for a 50-50 split of everything thanks to G thanks to Steve Jobs. Yeah, so now the, the company had uh, an investment of $130 million, plus they were able to make more money on the gross of the film and merchandise. And so now they were kind of independent they were still working with Disney, but after Toy Story, they were kind of free to do whatever they wanted. And I think Toy Story is its actually their shortest film. I think it's 83 minutes long, but I think its simplicity is why it works so well. And I, I think they maybe kept it short to make it feasible for them to produce because the budget was so small. And the thing with Toy Story is it's got incredibly memorable characters. I mean, you have Woody and Buzz, and Buzz is so great because... He doesn't think he's a toy. The two of them playing off each other, I think is why this film works. And a, a com completely contrasting from the original concept of Woody, the Woody in this film is a good-hearted toy. And his mission is to bring Buzz back because he knows that Buzz is Andy's favorite toy. And he doesn't want Andy to feel upset. Yeah, Woody and Buzz are great lead characters and you couldn't ask for a better pair and you know Woody's this old-fashioned cowboys classic like tv character charismatic he's a leader of all these toys in andy's room and he's he's andy's favorite toy and buzz is this new shiny exciting spaceman uh, he's powerful he's he's got great dialogue he has cool weapons he's got wings and all the other t uh, toys are smitten with him and they think he's great and there's this great metaphor and theme of of replacement and being passed on that everyone can relate to in our lives, you know, being moved on from, ignored, broken up with, fired, and again, just being replaced is a is a theme that these toys have to deal with, and it's and it's difficult because the toys have deep connections with their humans, and I think it's a great message for kids because let's say you have like a you're you're you have an only child and it's like a five-year-old boy and he's the center of the attention in the family and everyone loves him obviously and then this five-year-old boy now gets a, a new little sister a baby sister and what's gonna happen to that, that little boy he's going to feel like he's being replaced he's going to feel like his family's moving on to something newer another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. And better and shinier and, and cuter and everyone's giving that new baby all the attention. So I think that's a great underlying theme and metaphor and how to cope with something like that. And really the, the whole message of the film is coming together with the ones you love and friendship is the most important part of life. Yeah, friendship is key. And that's why Woody sets out to find Buzz because he knows that Andy Buzz is Andy's favorite toy, and if he lost Buzz, it would hurt Andy greatly. And because of their love for their human, the toys risk everything to get to bring Buzz back. And Buzz has this amazing story arc where he's obviously deluded in the beginning of the movie, where <laughs> very he, funny. he doesn't realize that he's a toy, and he thinks he's really Buzz Lightyear. He thinks his his ship or his case is real, and it's a real spaceship when it's really made of plastic and carbon. When he he finally learns who he is, and he watches that commercial on tv of of buzz lightyear and how none of his tricks actually do anything and he doesn't actually have a laser he can't actually fly and now buzz kind of has to understand the realization that he's not a he's not buzz lightyear he's just a toy and it really hits hard and it's one of the most emotional parts of the film is this journey of buzz trying to get through this and woody is is the one who helps him with this and helps comfort him and helps confesses insecurities and see and sees eye to eye with buzz lightyear to to bring him back and to to help him accept who he is. Yeah, accepting who you are and identity is a, a major theme in this film. And this film also has a great villain. Every Pixar movie has a great villain. And and Sid is a, a really memorable villain because he's the first one. And also he's just like, he's just such a maniac. I feel like we all knew a kid like that yeah, too. Who everyone was always knew like it. blowing stuff up at yeah. the end of the street. Everyone knew a, a, a kid named, who was like Sid who was just kind of a dangerous kid to be around. You knew that like your parents didn't want you hanging out with them. And if you were hanging out with this kid, you might, someone might get hurt. <laughs> someone always get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and this film has a, a, a great climax with that amazing chase in the streets. And it's really amazing that they, these, this company created something like this. And I remember seeing that chase for the first time and being blown away by it where they're on the uh, little RC racer and yeah. The battery's about to die, and then Rock lights. I mean, then Buzz lights the rocket on his back, yeah. and they shoot up, and then they end up flying in the air. And before they explode, they Buzz Lightyear Not shoots today. out his wings, and they <laughs> they glide down into the truck. And it's great because not only are Buzz and Woody working together because they needed to work together in order to get back to Andy, um, Buzz is finally accepting who he is by finding out that he really can fly <laughs> in a way. In a way, yeah, it's really cute. And then. This friendship that was built in this film ends up being the heart and soul of all of the Pixar, of all of the Toy Story films, all the way up to Toy Story 4. Yeah, and they did an amazing job taking these tiny environments, these uh, mundane places like a bedroom, uh, a, a backyard, a gas station, Pizza Planet, <laughs> a highway, and they turned these small environments into immense landscapes of of wonder that really that's what they are to children these little environments really are full of endless possibilities when children look at them yeah and if you look at the if you watch this film now obviously like you said the animation is very crude uh and dated compared to what they're doing now but for us when we were kids and we saw this we were completely sold on it it looked photorealistic to us and i think I i had never been so transported by an animated film before and i think that's what people didn't understand about computer animated films is it has the ability because it's three-dimensional to transport you unlike two-dimensional animation and it still has those great underlying themes about replacement friendship um envy and trying to accept each other and 
You can understand Woody's envy when Buzz Lightyear comes comes into the picture and becomes Andy's new favorite uh, toy, and you understand how they become enemies. But then it's a, incredibly rewarding when the, when Buzz and Woody themselves become basically like best buds and they team up. This film is it set the groundwork for Pixar. Great characters, emotionally resonant story, groundbreaking animation, and accessible by all audiences. What attracted Tom Hanks to the role of Woody was during his childhood, he personally would wonder if his toys were alive when nobody was around. And in order to get him signed on for the film, they animated a scene from Turner and Hooch, and they took the audio from that film, which Tom Hanks made in the 80s, and they made a little short animated film with Woody as the animation. They sent it to Tom Hanks, and he was blown away by it and signed on. The carpet in Sid's house has the same hexagonal pattern as the carpet in the Overlook Hotel from The Shining. <laughs> the first scene that they, they created for Toy Story was the toy soldier scene, and the animation team perfected the movement of the toy soldiers by nailing a pair of sneakers to a sheet of wood and trying to walk around with them on. That's one of my favorite scenes. Toy Story was the first animated film in Oscar history to be nominated for a Best Screenplay Academy Award, adapted or original. Next up, we have A Bug's Life which came out in 1998, directed by John Lasseter and co-directed by Andrew Stanton, who would go on to make his own Pixar films in the future. The story is written by John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, and Joe Ranft. With the threat of greedy grasshoppers upon the ant colony, a loyal ant recruits a group of bugs to protect the colony. Voice actors in this film are Kevin Spacey, Dave Foley, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Hayden Panettiere, Richard Kind, and Phyllis Diller. This film was the most successful animated film of the year, earning $363 million on a budget of $120 million. So after, this, after Toy Story, they got a big budget from their investors and they were able to make A Bug's Life. A Bug's Life is a great movie, and obviously I remember seeing it when we were kids and had a great time. And it's possibly more important of a film than Toy Story in a way because it has this massive story with so many characters and probably it's Pixar might be their most underrated film because it lives in the shadow beneath most of these successful movies, but it was so important because, yeah, Pixar made Toy Story and it was a wild success, but could they do it again? Could they replicate the magic of Toy Story? So that's why A Bug's Life was such an important movie to get right and to also, if not match Toy Story, come pretty close. Lightning can strike once, but can it strike twice? And in Pixar's case, can it strike 20 times? Yeah, there are two bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> not saying which ones. What sets this film apart from Toy Story is... They animated organic nature. Uh, there are insects. You see grass. You see trees. You see dirt. You see water. They really expanded the scope of the storytelling and expanded the size of the environments. Yeah, and they had their research and development. Their R&D teams use these little bug cameras that they created to film the perspective of the world from an inch above the ground. What it looked like if what ants look out at the world, the perspective they have from being below the grass looking up and... It was really informative in how to design the world that these ants and these bugs are living in. And again, this was a really big step up in terms of, of animation, in terms of crowd design, where you have these massive sh these shots of massive crowds of ants and so many different characters who are all moving uniquely in different ways. And it was incredibly complex at the time to make, and they didn't think they could pull it off. But obviously, John Lasseter is a workaholic and made them, it made them pull it off eventually, and they did. Yeah, they only had a limitation of 50 characters before they made this film, uh, but they hired, they put together an entire team 
which was in charge of creating the crowds, and they managed to bring in thousands of characters by the end of the film. If you look at the one of the last shots at the climax, there the entire colony of ants has has shown their true numbers to the to the grasshoppers to take control of the power dynamics of the situation. Yeah, I think in in Toy Story, I think the the scene with the most animated characters is probably the claw scene the claw the claw with all the uh, little alien dolls <laughs> so i if the, i think that's probably right yeah. but um but a bug's life was filled with public feuds which was caused by dreamworks who became a competitor to pixar and was uh co-founded by walt disney um exile jeffrey katzenberg and spielberg and katzenberg used to work with john lasseter back in the day and lasseter admits that he, you know, unknowingly gave away the plot to A Bug's Life to Katzenberg, not thinking that he'd steal the idea or use it, but Katzenberg did exactly that because he wanted to compete with A Bug's Life and he wanted to compete with Pixar. And so Katzenberg basically even told him on the phone that, yeah, I took your idea and I ran with it. And um, Pixar had been working on A Bug's Life much longer than DreamWorks had been working on Ants, but Katzenberg wanted to have ants come out first so he was having his animators do everything they could to come up before bugs life they even pushed the original release for their first animated feature was supposed to be the prince of egypt but they pushed that back so they could come out with ants to get that out ahead of a bug's life but it didn't work and even at by this time pixar's project was just called bugs and is well known in the animation community and they both center on a young male ant a drone with the oddball tendencies Struggles 200 princesses hand, save, has to save the society, and ultimately, they both were very critically acclaimed successes and both made a lot of money, but A Bug's Life ended up making more than twice the box office that Ants made. Yeah, I had no idea about that. Now I remember being a kid, and they did come out pretty close to one another, but obviously A Bug's Life is the better film, and I think Bug's Life works better because it's so much more colorful than Ants. Ants has a lot of uh, dark grays and browns and the ants are brown and so I think that it doesn't have the same uh, visual aesthetic as A Bug's Life where every insect is a, a completely different character. There's lots of greens and blues and and, and reds and so I think it's a, a more uh, visually stunning film and the idea for A Bug's Life came during a, a lunch meeting between the head animators at Pixar and during this lunch meeting this group of animators came up with the ideas for A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, and WALL-E. Every single one of these ideas they came up with on this single lunch. That's insane. Yeah. And A Bug's Life is, is a much more family-friendly film compared to Ants, which has like more adult themes and, or in uh, underlying messages. But A Bug's Life also does have challenging... Um, subject matter. It's probably the first, if not only, Disney Pixar esque film to tackle these themes of oppression, and it's it's a pretty dark Pixar film. It's probably the darkest one. It's up there. I mean, there are intense scenes of of Hopper crushing grasshoppers to death. Uh, Flicks gets physically beat intensely. Um, Hopper getting ready to crush Flick to death, and so there's some intense scenes and moments in this film. Hopper is. Definitely one of the most ruthless and evil villains in all of the Pixar films. He really has put this colony in serious danger, and there are pretty high stakes just for the survival of this colony. And I think a, another villain like Syndrome is very dark and, and cruel and ruthless. And so Pixar generally stays away from villains this intense, but 
uh, they did for this film and, and with The Incredibles. And I think it, it really works to have uh, Hopper as a villain because Kevin Spacey is great. And it the stakes for the ants are in, insurmountable, it seems as though. Yeah, and basically the, the plot of the film is that Flick is this ant who comes up with an ingenious way to collect uh, food for their colony. But he accidentally knocks the colony's entire offering for the grasshoppers into the lake. And they have a serious problem because they have to come up with the food for the grasshoppers who basically control their colony out of fear. And the grasshoppers give until the end of winter to gather another harvest. Flick flees the city to enlist the help of other insects to defend the colony. And it's very similar to Seven Samurai. <laughs> if you've ever seen the amazing film by Kurosawa, uh, I remember the first time we ever watched that movie, you're like, hey, you want to watch this samurai movie? It's, it's very old and it's fantastic. I'm like, yeah, let's put it on. It was like 11 o'clock and it ended at like 2.40. I'm like, what movie was this? <laughs> Holy shit. It was amazing though. It's a great film. I had no idea it was three and a half hours long. So it has a very similar story to Seven Samurai. You know, uh, this person in a village has to enlist the help of, of these circus bugs, circus bugs, basically, and uh, to defend their colony. But it's what's so funny about this is it's a misunderstanding because he's asking for warriors, and then the circus bugs are just, they're entertainers, they're actors, and uh, they just need work, and so they agree um, to try and they think that they're going to be putting on a show for the ant colonies, and then. And then Flick thinks he's getting warriors because the show they put on was, it seemed like they were great fighters. And I love this underlying theme throughout the entire film of power and fear, where the ants, they don't realize that they really have the power over the grasshoppers the entire time. But the grasshoppers use fear to intimidate and control the ants to do what they want. The ants finally realize that they're really in control and all they have to do is work together and they can easily defeat Hopper and save their colony. Yeah, size and numbers. They, there are tens of thousands of them compared to a dozen grasshoppers. And then Flick is a, a really great character because he's very naive and innocent and very optimistic. And he's always trying to come up with inventions. And he's always he always has the best of intentions, even though he tends to make a mess of things. And he, he's a lovable character. Yeah, it's nothing we've never seen before. It's kind of a little bit of a cliche. But again... I think Pixar embraces those cliches in a very creative way, and we get lots of cool things in this film that Flick, Flick does especially. I think one of my favorite things he does in this film is he creates that telescope with a little blade of yeah. grass and like a little water droplet. So Pixar got very creative with, with the uh, elements in the world they were working with, even making a, a city of insects out of piles of trash rather than us <laughs> looking at a pile of trash of insects all over just like oh it's disgusting mm -hmm. they took that and they turned it into a city and i love the uh the circus bugs manager is a crick is what is he a flea he's always smoking cigars <laughs> <laughs> flick is super creative and i think my favorite part is when they they build that that giant fake bird because hopper has an intense phobia of birds because he was attacked by a bird before the film started and that's why he has a scar on his eye so He's intensely afraid of birds, and so that seems to be the the only way in which the ants can prevail over Hopper by scaring him away. And it's the ultimate redemption story of an underdog who screws up majorly but wins the graces of his colony back and gets the girl and defeats the bad guy. And so, you know, it's a story, again, that we haven't seen before, but very creative and done in a, a wonderful Pixar way with, with great animation, amazing music, fantastic characters and voice acting, and plus that good old charm and, and charisma and humor and heart of every Pixar film. Yeah, and you might not remember these characters by name, but in the, in the structure of the film, they're all very memorable and they're a lot of fun. It proved that Pixar has the potential to 
to keep going forward with these kinds of movies. And this was, I think, as big of a import, as big of a stepping stone as making their first film is making a successful second film. And one of my favorite things about this movie is that they uh, created the sequence at the end credits of uh, outtakes of the characters. So I remember remember being a kid and seeing the outtakes of the Pixar characters, being like, "Oh, it's a, it's like it's a real film set." They're like really filming with real cameras. It's a very cute scene. Moving on to Toy Story 2, which came out in 1999, directed by John Lasseter, Ash Brandon, and Lee Uncrick. Story and screenplay by John Lasseter, Pete Docter, Ash Brandon, Andrew Stanton, Rita Hassau, Doug Chamberlain, and Chris Webb. Buzz and all of Andy's other toys are tasked to save Woody, who was stolen by a toy collector. This is a time-sensitive mission. They must save him before he becomes the property of a museum. This film had a budget of $90 million and had a global box office of $497 million. Toy Story 2 also has very strong, heavy themes. They're different in this one. The main theme of the film is uh, Woody struggling with the idea that one day Andy's going to outgrow him. It's going to happen eventually, and he might be forgotten by Andy, and then that's a major conflict weighing heavily on Woody in this film. Yeah, I think this is a tremendous sequel, and... It achieved basically everything that you want a sequel to a great movie to do. You know, expands the universe and the storyline. Um, we get new characters and we get to also explore more in depth our old characters. Um, and we also raise the stakes of the adventure and, 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 and introduce new themes like you just brought up. And serious existential themes in this film. I mean, Woody gets ripped and is then faced... With his mortality as a toy, as he's placed on the shelf where toys go to die, and Woody also meets new characters, Jesse, the prospector, Bullseye, after, be taken, after being taken by that collector, and he learns the backstory of who Woody really is and how he was once an iconic TV character, and after riding high on finding out who he is, he's faced with another dilemma, staying with the new toys to ensure that they remain out of storage, or returning home to Andy and his friends which would doom his new friends to an entirety in storage and also ensure that he, Woody himself, will also be doomed to never be played with again. And also the fact that because he's worried that a Andy will eventually outgrow him, if he's kind of intrigued by the idea that if he stays in a museum, then he'll, he'll live forever in a museum. And so he won't ever be abandoned or thrown in the trash. And so that becomes an, an alluring prospect for Woody. And he eventually... At first, he tries to escape his situation, and then he eventually agrees with the prospector and thinks that it would be a better choice for him to go to the museum. I think this is the first film that Pixar actually tackles really intense themes, especially I see this as, as Woody dealing with death and mortality, like I said before, similar to what we'll get to in Up, which really did that even more and even to an extent Wally. But Jessie is this great new character. She's a cowgirl in Woody's world, in his uh, animated TV show world. And her story is one of the most emotional scenes I've ever seen in Pixar where it's Jesse's story and um, they do this touching montage of, I get goosebumps every time I talk about them <laughs> right now, where it tells the inevitable story of basically how every toy, they go from becoming the center of attention of their owners, loved and played with every day, taken everywhere, taken outside, indoors, wherever, to eventually being forgotten over time, given away, thrown out, lost underneath a bed, stuck in a closet. And it's a it's an inevitable um, journey for every toy. And Jessie, especially because she was abandoned by her, her human, 
and she was also uh, stuck in a small box, which is an extremely heartbreaking scene and also has formed uh, intense claustrophobia for her. That's why she's afraid of being confined into that storage facility because she has claustrophobia from being stuck in that box after being abandoned. And this is, to me, it's, it's a metaphor of the inevitability of, of death and human beings in life and that at some point our time will come to an end here on Earth and just like these toys, they have to face that and before they face it, though, they have to live their lives to the fullest. And while this is happening, Buzz and the team have decided that they're going to try and find Woody. And it's a really cute. It's it's really great to see Buzz taking the lead of the other characters. And these are the moments that bring le- levity and, and comedy to the movie. And I think my favorite parts of this storyline is that we're introduced to another Buzz Lightyear. Uh, and then we're also introduced to, to their mortal enemy, Zerg. Yeah, Zerg, who ends up being his father. Buzz has a <laughs> it's like it's like a Star Wars, yeah, obviously. It's like Empire. Yeah, and Buzz is doing his own self discovery on his own. Yeah. And, and I love the way it, it opens up with the video game of him fighting Zorg. Yeah, because you think it's real, <laughs> but he comes across that that store full of Buzz Light years, and then there's the new like doppelganger Buzz Lightyear who yeah. kind of takes his place for a little bit. And um, and Buzz is great this movie, and he's again like you said, he's like kind of the comic relief of the intense storyline that Woody's following. Mm-hmm. And then they eventually find Woody, and Woody doesn't want to leave. He's decided that he wants to go to the museum with Jesse and the prospector in Bullseye. But then Buzz reminds Woody that a, a toy's purpose is not to just sit in a museum. A toy's purpose is to be played with by children. And so it doesn't matter if Andy forgets you. It's going to happen to everyone, but... Our purpose is to to bring joy to the children's lives, not to sit on a shelf. And so that hits real hard, and Woody realizes that he doesn't belong in a museum. No toy belongs in a museum, so he decides to to abandon uh, Al in in The Prospector. You're hitting me hard with that. (laughs) Getting teary-eyed over here. And then we end up learning that The Prospector was the, the villain of the film, and he's the one who was preventing Woody from initially escaping because... Like you said earlier, if the entire set of the Woody collection isn't together, then the museum won't take them. So the prospector wants to go to the museum. And the prospector is also very cynical because he's never been played with. He's just been a collector's item his entire life. And so he doesn't know what it's like to be played with by a child and the joy of, of fulfilling your purpose as a toy. And so like every Pixar villain, you really you can, you can empathize with their motivations. And he gets a satisfying ending for the audience where he gets placed with the little girl. And you can imagine that he's going to hate that life, but also he's going to get played with yeah. at some point. So maybe he'll learn what it really means to be your toy. Mm-hmm. And then Jesse ends up joining the crew. She becomes uh, the newest member of the, the Toy Story family. And so does the Bullseye, yeah. the horse. So they'll be recurring characters, which is great. This film was originally meant to be a direct-to-DVD release and was plagued with tons of issues, mo- mostly because John Lasseter was on a much needed hiatus and break from a toy from Toy Story and a Bug's Life, which he basically worked, you know, every day on, day and night. The original production of Toy Story Two had to be basically thrown out and they had to redo it because it really wasn't that good once they got John Lasseter back because they knew something was wrong, it was missing something and Disney told them that they didn't have time to redo everything, and Pixar decided that the only course of action was to have John Lasseter come back and take over the film. And Lasseter reworked the entire script with Pixar and inspired the entire studio to basically start over and create this tremendous sequel. A really cool fact about Tom Hanks is when Jessie meets Woody for the first time, she says, Sweet mother of Abraham Lincoln! 
And the reason why they put that in the story is because Tom Hanks is actually related to Abraham Lincoln in real life. So Abraham Lincoln's mother was named Nancy Hanks. She's a direct relative of Tom Hanks. He is a direct descendant of this woman who is who was uh, Lincoln's mother. I think he was also related to, related to Mr. Rogers. Maybe. I think so. Yeah, it's crazy, though. You're a direct descendant of Abraham Lincoln. Isn't that crazy? It's pretty cool. Yeah. Next up, we have Monsters, Inc., which came out in 2001, directed by Pete Docter, written by Pete Docter, Jill Colton, Jeff Pigeon, and Ralph Eggleston, and Andrew Stanton. Monsters have one job, to scare children so bad that they scream. In a turn of events, a little girl accidentally enters the city of Monsters, and two monsters are tasked with getting her back to her home. This film stars Billy Crystal, John Goodman, Mary Gibbs, Steve Buscemi, James Coburn, and Jennifer Tilly. This film grossed $579 million worldwide on a budget of $115 million. Monsters, Inc. is yet another genius concept like Toy Story that really dives into the imagination of children and the common belief that monsters are hiding in their bedrooms at night, in their closet, under their bed. We've all been afraid of the dark at some point in our lives, looking for monsters in the night and I've seen this movie way too many times to count to thanks to our niece's obsession with it at a young age because we used to babysit her every day. And Monsters, Inc., for me, I think they broadened the scope of Pixar's possibility with this film, leaving the real world and entering something else entirely. I truly think it's it opened the door for the evolution of Pixar's universe, similar to how the doors in the movie opened to an entirely new world of monsters. I like how you did that. I came up with that by myself. Pretty good. Yeah, um... I think this is my favorite concept for all of the Pixar films. I think it's absolutely brilliant and so creative. And like you said, it expanded the scope because it entered the realm of sci-fi, a completely new genre for Pixar. And we see in this film that Pixar is perfectly suited for making sci-fi because it has endless possibilities for creation uh, with the animation for making characters and, and locations and creating worlds. I mean... There's no better world-building build, apparatus than the Pixar machine because you can do anything. And I think that this film, like we said earlier, they expanded their uh, possibilities and created new softwares and, and new techniques with each film. And I think with Monsters, Inc., what they really uh, achieved in this film was creating realistic hairs and textures. So Sully and all the other characters and the fabrics... Um, seeing the hairs and, and textures, I think they really upped their game in that aspect of filmmaking. Yeah, it's kind of ironic because Mike Wazowski is, seems like to be the simplest creation of a character you can imagine. She's just an eyeball with arms and legs, <laughs> and he just has eye expressions and a mouth. But then you have Sully, who's this giant bear-like blue creature with tons of hair and hair follicles. And he's on camera, on screen so often, you can only imagine how long it took to animate him, and this was a major step in their animation. Yeah, they had always avoided using hair in films, and if there's hair in a character in the previous films from the human characters, uh, for if they were a, a male, they would have very short hair, and if they were a woman, they usually had a ponytail. So Andy's mom always has a ponytail in the first couple of movies because they didn't have the technology to really animate all these strands of hair. And Sully in Monsters, Inc., has 2.3 million individual strands of hair which move independently from each other. And it took 12 hours to render each frame that Sully was involved in. Oh my god, that's insane. 
And one of the strengths of Pixar is they ask their creators to think like children, you know, think outside the box, explore creativity no matter what hole it leads you down. And this is the perfect movie for that because they're asking their animators and their creators and illustrators to come up with monsters. And the the cool thing about that is there's there's no limitation on that. Come up with whatever you think, whatever your your brain comes up with, whatever comes on the paper, whatever comes out on your computer is a possibility in this world. Yeah, and they actually went through all sorts of test subjects and they originally had an idea of solely having tentacles instead of feet, which would have been a little little distracting, I think. But they, I think they ended up on incredibly memorable characters. Mike and Sully, like I said earlier, they follow the story structure of having two co-leads for the film that go on, that go on an adventure and have a goal. And Sully and Mike, uh, it's almost like it's improvised, their dialogue with each other. And I think Billy Crystal obviously added so much comedy and improvisation to his recordings and him and Mike and Sully together are an incredible pair because it's hard to follow up Buzz and Woody how do you follow up that iconic duo and I think Mike and Sully are up to the task and they're just as memorable yeah in contrast to Woody and Buzz uh, starting out as rivals in their storyline, Sully and Mike are best buds and they actually live together and they're they're part of the same scare team because as the movie opens, Metropolis is facing a crisis. Kids are getting too hard to scare and there's a scream shortage and it's children scares that power Monstropolis and rolling blackouts are predicted and there's a complete energy shutdown uh, on the horizon. And so Monsters Inc. has to double their efforts and try to scare children in new ways and increase the energy that's coming into the city. Yeah, and through this process, uh, a human child is actually accidentally makes her way into the monster world, and we end up discovering that this is Boo, an adorable little girl, and she's kind of like a, a surrogate for the audience in a way, where uh, she's the only human in the entire film. And it's ironic because... Kids are afraid of monsters in the film, but also monsters are afraid of kids. And it's so funny. Kids are supposedly toxic to the monsters. I think the heads of Monstropolis created this lie so that monsters don't really feel a ton of grief or guilt when they're scaring the hell out of these innocent children. It makes the, the monsters seem kind of heroic in a way that they're they're doing this to save their city and to power their city. And we get that like classic Armageddon slow-motion, <laughs> slow-motion walk with all the all the people that are looking to, to go into a, a NASA rocket, but they're actually just going to scare little children. And they all trip. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. And um, this also has a great villain as well. Randall, played by Steve Buscemi, is a fantastic rival to Sully and Mike, but also ends up becoming a fantastic villain in the movie. Randall is working with Waternoose where they have this scheme going where they have built this prototype machine which is going to suck scares out of children. So they want to kidnap children from their homes, bring them to this machine, and suck out all the screams they can from these children, probably causing them serious harm emotionally and physically. And that's their new, that's their plan for trying to provide enough energy for the city. Yeah, and these monsters are, and these main antagonists are as creepy and disturbing designs, which reflect their personalities because they're clearly horrible characters and just mm-hmm. are going to try to create harm to so many innocent kids. And the, the, the movie is so interesting because when monsters are scaring all these kids at the beginning of the movie again it it represents the society that maybe doesn't have high moral values because it's kind of just business as usual and it's you know they're doing it to power their city and ambitions involved and it's not until boo enters their world where 
her and Sully start to develop this really cute relationship, and then Mike Wazowski gets in on it. And Mike Wazowski. Mike Wazowski, and the three of them just become best buds, and they realize that Boo is a person or a, a being that has a soul and has emotions, and they're not much different. They just look a little different, and they live in different places. And, and Mike and Sully begin to understand that what they're doing is wrong, really. Scaring these innocent children is the wrong way to go about keeping their city alive and keeping their city afloat. And in order to to evolve emotionally and ethically, they have to change the world they live in. And that's when they discover that laughter is actually the best fuel that they could use to power their city. And by creating a better world for both humans and monsters, they devote their time to now laughter instead of scares by the end of the film. Yeah, and they slowly learn throughout the film there are several moments where Boo laughs and then power surges around them and they discover that laughter is 10 times more powerful than scaring. It's a complete uh, contrast and transformation for for characters like Sully and Mike where they had they thought they had to be monstrous in order to provide energy for their for their civilization but then they learn that it's more powerful to bring joy and happiness to the lives of children. Yeah, it kind of brings them all into question of what it means to be a monster. And do you want to be a monster that scares or you want to be a monster that brings happiness? Yeah. And th this movie has uh, probably the best chase sequence in all of Pixar movies is that Randall chasing them through, first of all, the giant factory where you can see millions upon millions of doors. And then moving through the doors once they're all unlocked and they're going traveling all over the world going through these doors and it's it's an, a fantastic chase sequence a really entertaining and, and exhilarating chase scene yeah i think this entire movie is hysterical it might be pixar's funniest if not it's up there it's, it's it blows my mind how funny it is every time and I'm, i still just think about it it makes me laugh and like the abominable snowman scene <laughs> kills me every single time it's just it's so funny yeah mike uh billy crystal really steals the show in this and he actually turned down the role of Buzz Lightyear for Toy Story. They offered it to him first, and he didn't really know. He didn't really understand it. And then after he saw Toy Story, he was like, "That was the biggest mistake in my life." And then he was like begging Pixar to give him another role and another chance. And then he jumped on this film. And what's really cool about this movie is that uh, news leaked that during the theatrical showings of a monsters inc lucasfilm would be showing the first teaser trailer for star wars attack of the clones and so hundreds and hundreds of uh, star wars fans paid for tickets for monsters inc just to watch the teaser trailer for star wars and then they left after the teaser was over next up we have finding nemo which was released in 2003 directed by andrew stanton and lee uncrick written by andrew stanton bob peterson and david reynolds after the death of his wife, a timid clownfish is terrified of his son exploring and being away from home. Despite his warnings, his son is captured, so it's up to him to find his son and bring him back home safely. This film had a budget of $94 million and had a worldwide box office gross of $940 million, so close to a billion, Nemo. This film stars Albert Brooks, Ellen DeGeneres, Alexander Gould, Willem Dafoe, Brad Garrett, Allison Janney, and Austin Pendleton. Finding Nemo is a really beautiful movie and a very heartwarming and heart-wrenching movie. And I think that this is Pixar firing on all cylinders where they perfectly blended drama and, and heart with great comedy. And this is the most visually stunning Pixar movie to date. Yeah, it's obvious that Pixar picked the perfect world and environment to make a movie in with with um, Finding Nemo underwater in the ocean. And 
Pixar really got to flex those muscles from an animation perspective and show us something we've never seen before, and they sure did. And it's such a colorful film and and unique and charming, and it's emotional, it's funny. It's absolutely, it's actually hysterical. Yeah. Um, and the stories are great, and we have like basically two storylines going on at the same time, and kind of a race to the finish. And it's it's full of creativity, and it blew every other animated film out of the water, pun intended, from a graphic <laughs> standpoint. And they once again teamed up two memorable co-leads for this film, where we have Marlon and Dory. And so Pixar is once again using their trademark story structure to tell the story. And also every Pixar movie, the lead character has this uh, theme of self-improvement. And in this film, Marlon's cha- Marlon goes through a character transformation of being a very worrisome and controlling father to becoming a, a more trusting and easygoing father by the end of the film. Yeah, Nemo is full of so many important messages, and most importantly, that it's okay to be different. Nemo was born with a birth defect. He's got that small fin which forces his father, Marlon, to be overprotective of him, especially what happened to him when with his wife, too. And this eventually pushes Nemo away and makes Nemo try bold things and to make up for this handicap that he was born with. And Dory has short-term memory loss and as a result doesn't know much about who she is. And the moral of the film is everybody is unique and it's important to accept who you are and that you, you have to try to live the best life possible no matter what cards you're dealt. And you shouldn't let what makes you unique hold you back but instead you should embrace it and this film demonstrates the the power of the love of a parent to their child because marlin has an impossible task in front of him where he has to somehow find nemo who was taken by a human and he traverses the entire ocean in order to do this impossible journey and he will stop at nothing and he'll never give up because of the power of love yeah, we have this great back and forth of storylines between Nemo's journey trying to get back to Marlin. And then we have Marlin and Dory's journey trying to find Nemo. And it's basically two genres in one movie. We got like this awesome road trip adventure movie <laughs> cut with like a prison break film as Nemo spends much of the film trying to escape that fish tank in the dentist's office with the help of his new friends. And then we meet some really great characters in Pixar created these computer animated animals and it was so fun to see like the sea turtles who were all like stoner surfer guys (laughs) and then the sharks uh led by bruce who was actually named after the shark in jaws the uh mechanical animatronic shark was named jaws on set and so they named this shark bruce after him fish off friends not food and the funny thing about uh bruce is yeah that he's a friendly guy he's he seems to be helping them out and he, he wants to do Right by them, but then once he smells blood, he turns into a, a ferocious beast. Yeah, the concept of the sharks who are like trying to kick the habit of eating fish is hysterical yeah, to it's me. Great. And then Crush the Sea Turtle is actually played by director Andrew Stanton. He uh, recorded the dialogue as a, a temp track just to have in the film for editing, and then they were planning to hire another actor. But every time they showed the film to someone, they loved his uh, performance as the turtle, so they kept it in. Marlon in this movie kind of reminds me of uh, Prisoners with Jake Gyllenhaal and... and uh... <laughs> Hugh Jackman, where his whole life is is based on protecting his son and his family and caring for his son and not letting anything bad happen to his son. But then something bad does happen to his son when he's captured by the scuba diver. And we have to watch him on this emotional journey where half the time he's he's a wreck and he's he's just doing whatever he can to find his kid. And it's it's a very similar storyline, except a lot less dark. Yeah, a lot less violence. (laughs) But you're right. (laughs) And uh, 
I think that this film has the most beautiful score in all of Pixar movies. I think Thomas Newman's score for Finding Nemo is is remarkable, and he really translated the the feeling of being in the ocean and the the heart and, and the love, which is the center of the story, uh, through music. And I think it's uh, the the most essential musical identity for for a film. And this movie has a huge payoff when Nemo and, and Marlon are finally reunited after Dory finds Nemo, who escaped that fish tank in the dentist's office. And Dory is finally able to remember the journey that she just took with Marlon and realize <laughs> who Nemo is. And I think that's one of the funniest scenes in the film where like Dory's trying to remember what's going on after yeah. she sees Sydney written on the on that thing. Sydney. Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Dory, she I think that she gains her memory back because she finally uh, develops an emotional connection with Marlon and that allows her to to link up these memories together and to have them stick within her brain. And the great thing about Finding Nemo is there are tons of like jokes that kids don't even get and there's a complexity to Albert Brooks' character, Marlon, and we have this massive world full of beautiful creatures and it's almost hypnotic just like when you go to an aquarium and you're walking around and you're seeing these amazing tanks full of these swimming fish and these beautiful colors and these hovering jellyfish and, and colorful lights. And it's it's a beautiful film. Yeah, and th this is a perfect example of how Pixar has set itself apart from 2D because when you compare this to The Little Mermaid, which is a beautiful movie, it's a great movie, obviously one of the best of all time in animated, but you don't get the, you don't get the same sensational visuals that pixar creates with with 3d you feel like you're in the water you see the light passing through the waves and you can see all the textures and animals and critters and this really showed the power that pixar had to transport you to another world and i think that they paved the way for making three-dimensional computer animation films the the new uh standard for animated films especially with finding nemo and it was a testament to how successful it is because, yeah, it almost made a billion dollars at the box office, but Finding Nemo is actually still the best-selling DVD of all time in history. It has sold over 40 million DVDs, which amounts to about a billion dollars just from DVD sales. And Pixar had become so good at what they did. The surface water they created originally for this film looked too realistic, and they were afraid that audiences would think that they just filmed it in real life and that it was live action water so they actually uh, altered the animation to make it look a little more fake to make audiences accept that it's an animated film next up we have the incredibles which came out in 2004 directed and written by brad bird following the fall of superhero credibility superheroes are forced to live a quiet suburban suburban life after an attack is imminent a superhero family comes out of retirement to save the world this film earned $631 million worldwide on a budget of $92 million and stars Craig T. Nelson, Samuel L. Jackson, Holly Hunter, Jason Lee, Dominique Lewis, and Teddy Newton. The Incredibles is an incredibly fun movie. When people talk about the best superhero movies made this century, I never understand how no one puts The Incredibles in their lists and they always leave it off because it's an animation film. And it's, it's fantastic, and I can't think of a better way for Pixar to make the ultimate family film than to tell a story about a family of superheroes. Yeah, and they're actually quick to the superhero game. They made this before any Marvel movies were made. They made this before Batman Begins. 
And if you think about it, these films take about three years to make. So they started production on this in 2001 when only the first Spider-Man had come out. So they were way ahead of the curve of the new superhero trend that we're so familiar with. And they brought on Brad Bird, who was not a part of Pixar. He's the actual first outsider they brought into Pixar to direct and write a film because he had just come off of The Iron Giant, which was a great film. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I think it came out in 2001, maybe, or 2000. And it it was a, a beloved animated film, but he felt that the production company kind of messed up in the terms of the marketing because the film didn't make that much money and he thinks that they ruined it because they didn't market it correctly or enough and so he was very upset that not enough people saw the movie and so he was happy to try out Pixar and see what he could get out of this company and he learned quickly that they wanted to give him as much freedom to do whatever he wanted and ironically this is Pixar's first feature film about human beings about a story of humans and Pixar I think they lose a little bit of that creativity and imagination and that magic when they make stories about human characters because it does it turns down that imagination a notch since they're dealing with many of the limitations of our own reality but this film is also very relatable to many people and families because of these human characters and we're shown you know the mundane and everyday lives of a family when they're not fighting crime and how normal they are compared to us and how they're just like us and despite being superheroes they're not gods like we see in the marvel movies and dc movies you know they're they're just normal people and obviously we have crimes and supervillains in the film but we're also shown these problems of jobs of school of familial bickering and fighting and and real family real world problems yeah these characters they kind of feel like they're stuck every every member of the family is stuck in some certain way whereas dash is stuck because he's not allowed to run or or really show his skill because he's so quick violet is kind of stuck because she's afraid to really open up to anyone and really show who she really is and then and helen is tied up with the family and and taking care of the household and she has her hands juggling the kids and keeping the house in order and, and a job. And then Bob is, is stuck at work. He works at a cubicle. He's stuck in traffic every day. And he just feels trapped in his life because superheroes in this film have lost their credibility because of the damage they had caused during their efforts of saving people. They caused a lot of collateral damage. And so superheroes are not allowed to operate anymore. They, are, they were forced to just become normal people. And so Bob and Helen especially... They lived these exciting lives of being superheroes and fighting crime and saving the day. And now they're kind of just stuck where they are. And Helen, she she's happy with who she is and what she has. But Bob, on the other hand, he's become so lost and he he's lost sight of what really matters in life that all he can think about is the superhero he used to be. And he wants to get that back. And he's lost sight of how important his family is. And you can kind of compare that to a lot of people in the world where maybe the superpowers for them is their ambition or their dreams or or something that they wanted to do in their life and they get held back by some of the the trappings of life whether it be a job or or a family that that kind of prevents you from doing things that you want to take a chance on and i see that as superpowers are people's ambition and dreams in real life that's actually perfectly relatable i can totally see that i think you're right for sure Amen. <laughs> and this film, they broke the tradition of having a, a pair of leads. This time we have an ensemble. There are a lot of characters in this film. They all have their own point of views. 
ultimately, yes, Bob is the, I would say, the lead of the film, but I think everyone in the family has an extremely important part to play in this film. And I think Sam Jackson is absolutely great as Frozone in this. Oh, yeah, him as Lucius in Frozone. is hysterical and one of the best characters for sure. And we're on this journey of a dysfunctional family in the first and second act of the film who have to eventually come together and achieve success at defeating the main villain of, of the film, which is clearly a common uh, plot device of a lot of Pixar films and a lot of animated films too, obviously, that, that learning to come together and and Pixar in this movie does an incredible job walking this like fine line or this tightrope of balancing comedy and humor with seriousness in these dark tones and these in these real life tones. And it's constantly dipping kind of back and forth into those different realms. And they both balance out so well that it doesn't get too serious before it gets funny and doesn't get too funny before it gets serious. Yeah, and Syndrome is a, a great Pixar villain. And like we said earlier, he's one of the darker Pixar villains in he actually has a brilliant plan where he he uses Bob's desire to be a hero again to improve his own machine to perfect it and make it unstoppable. He's been on this solo mindset where he's just been selfishly thinking about himself and his life and because of his desire to be a hero again, Syndrome takes advantage of that and ultimately throughout the film he he learns that he needs the help of his family in order to defeat the villain. Exactly, because it's not being alone and fighting crime that makes him happy. It's being with his family in fighting crime and being together with the people that make him happy. And one of the main themes of the film is accepting who you are. And like we talked about, the, the Incredibles are forced into hiding and so aren't all superheroes and must go into hiding from persecution. And, you know, Mr. Incredible and his family are stuck in the suburban lifestyle that they all hate. But they end up accepting who they are and showing the world who they are and saving the world at the same time. And this is a fast-paced movie. Um, Bird's style is incredibly fast-paced. The editing is quick. Not many long takes. All the takes, I mean, they have to be at least under three seconds long each. But they, it, they transition really well. And, the, and the, move, the movie flows real well and real quickly. And it moves on from chapter to chapter effectively. And the music is fantastic. G uh, Michael Giacchino, this is his first Pixar score. He's done, I think, six now. He's become one of their main composers. And this one is just so upbeat and jazzy and refreshing and high energy. And it's a, a very unique score. It's probably the most unique of all of the Pixar films. And I think it adds a, a great amount of color to the film. I think it's easy to see why people choose this as their favorite Pixar film pretty often. And again, that's the, that's the beauty about Pixar is there's no wrong answer when you make your rankings of the top three Pixar movies, the number one Pixar movie, your top 10. There's, there's no wrong answer to it because they're all phenomenal. They're all great. But I think Incredibles is one of the best they ever made, and it'll probably be one of the best they ever make. Yeah, I, I agree. It's one of my favorites. And like we said earlier, they changed... Uh, they they advance their ability of cinematography with this film, where you're seeing the lights in the in the scenes, you're seeing lamps in the rooms, and so they're advancing their software and their algorithms to produce uh, more realistic cinematography and visual images. And I mean, how funny is this movie? It's funny. Jack Jack is I think is my favorite Pixar character. He's absolutely hysterical in all the Incredible movies. I think Edna Mode is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a wonderful movie and. I hope they make another one because they're always really great, and I think it's a, a knockout. Up next is Cars, which was released in 2006, directed by John Lasseter and Joe Rampt. Story written by John Lasseter, Joe Rampt, Jorgen Klubin, Dan Fogelman, 
Keel Murray, and Phil Lauren. Lightning McQueen only has one focus, to win the big race. While on his way to California for the biggest race of his life, he finds himself in a little town where he learns that there's a lot more to life than just racing. This film stars Owen Wilson, Bonnie Hunt, Paul Newman, Larry the Cable Guy, Cheech Marin, and Tony Shalhoub. This film had a budget of $120 million and had a worldwide box office of $461 million. Just like every other Pixar film, they perfectly cast their characters in. I think Owen Wilson is, is absolutely perfect as Lightning McQueen. And Paul Newman, this was actually his last role as an actor before he passed away in 2008. And he's uh, very memorable as Doc in this film. And a lot of people don't know this, but Paul Newman was actually a very skilled and accomplished race car driver throughout most of his life. He won several national championships and recorded a second place finish at the fam famous 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1979. That's insane. Seriously. He raced for Porsche. It's like Michael Fassbender today. Yeah. The first thing I got to say about cars is ka-chow. Ka-chow. Pixar went back to its roots with this film personifying animated objects for a wildly successful and popular film with cars. And it's one hell of a ride, pun intended again. And it's basically what you get when you combine NASCAR and Pixar for Pixar. And <laughs> for some reason, Cars is one of Pixar's most criticized films. And don't get me wrong, two and three are not up to par with Pixar's filmography. But the original Cars is a very good movie and I think underrated. And it was... If you can look at it, it's, it's basically a safe bet for Pixar to make a movie like this. Yeah, because not only does the film make a lot of money, but they, I think Cars provides Pixar and Disney with the best uh, options for creating merchandise. I think Cars merchandise is probably the top selling before there was Frozen. And so kids love this film and they loved having the Lightning McQueen toys and all, all sorts of merchandise, and so I think this was a, a big moneymaker for Pixar and Disney. Yeah, our nephews were obsessed with Lightning McQueen when yeah. it came out, and it's one of the most iconic characters in Pixar's filmography, and for good reason. He's talented, funny, he's also flawed. He has a great story arc in this movie. He's basically the, de the definition of a great redemption story, and Lightning's arrogance leads him to make mistakes, but his growth as a character helps him fix the wrongs he's made in his past and in his storyline. Yeah, he's so blinded by the desire to win that he treats uh, his crew horribly to the point where they end up quitting on him. And then his main motivation is to, first of all, win win the race at the end of the week and also make the, the famed Dynaco team. And he doesn't care about anything else other than, make, other than achieving those two goals. And... This forces everyone who was trying to help him out of his life, and then he winds up in that that town, Radiator Springs. Radiator Springs, where he develops relationships and bonds with the the small town characters of this little area. Yeah, and Radiator Springs, it's it's this sad story that it obviously happens in growth and cultures where history or or where history is kind of forgotten in a lot of people are forgotten and this air this area radiator springs thrived in the era of route 66 prior to the construction of the interstate 40 which which bypassed the town and saved travelers uh 10 minutes of travel so this town got forgotten just to save 10 minutes of travel for people and it's it's kind of a sad theme throughout the film and and i think that pixar does a great job paying homage to like these little small towns in america and Gives us a perspective of what they're actually like, and it seems like they did their research to really get the the atmosphere of those environments. Yeah, well, John Lasseter based this film on a family road trip he took for I think he drove across the country with a, for a month with his family, 
And Lightning McQueen at first is still arrogant and unhappy to be there, but he's stuck there because uh, he accidentally destroyed the pavement, so there's no way of him driving away. And so he's tasked with rebuilding the pavement, but being who he is, he does a, a half-assed job and doesn't really do a good job paving it, so the town has him repave it again. And after spending so much time with these characters, he he learns to he grows to really he grows really close with them and uh, becomes affectionate and bonds with them. And he's actually he's learning important lessons both about racing from Doc, but then also about life. Yeah, and the story overall predictable and nothing we haven't seen before. But Pixar again approached these cliches with immense creativity, humor, and of course the heart that they bring to all their films. Yeah, and, and Lightning goes through a, a great transformation where by the end of the film during the big race. Rather than finishing first, he he elects to help the veteran racer who's damaged from a crash. Uh, he helps. He sacrifices the race to help get him across the finish line as a way of honoring him. But I do understand why people rank cars low on their list because I think you're less emotionally invested in this film compared to other Pixar films, and the stakes aren't as high in the third act and in climax as other Pixar films, but it's still a lot of fun, and it has incredible animation, and the Cars ride at Disney Universal Studios is lit. <laughs> I still gotta do it. But yeah, I think that Pixar is always trying to do something new and something different, and with Cars, they were able to enter an entirely new, different world, and then they advanced their technology even more so in terms of action and movement and being able to create these chase sequences at such high speeds. And I think the rendering for this film was uh, twice as long as any other film because there's so much information uh, happening in every moment during the races that it just took so long to render all the footage. And, and Owen Wilson's awesome in this movie, and Paul Newman's great, and, you know, Owen Wilson's got that great voice in the oh, hey, yeah. Wow. hey guys and when this film was released on dvd it sold five million copies in two days so this was very popular yeah and also this they invented this incredible new technique with the technology of the animation called ray tracing and this allows uh, the animated cars to reflect the environments around them and this also was in implemented in the future pixar movies so now when you see things like toy story 4 Bo Beep is very glossy, and you can see light reflecting off of her in a very realistic and accurate way. It's because they developed te the technique with cars and uh, obviously built upon that for the latter film. So it was a groundbreaking moment for uh, creating texture and reflections in this film. Cars has a couple firsts and last uh, with Pixar's. It was the final Pixar film to be released on VHS and the first to be released on Blu-ray. And it was also the last movie produced by Pixar before Disney officially bought it. There's this really cool theory that uh, the world of Cars takes place in a dystopian future where all humans are dead. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Crowd scene at the Piston Cup showdown at the at the end features 105,000 separate animated cars, including 13 cars entering the stadium alone. Wow, it's a lot of cars. Next up, we have Ratatouille, which came out in 2007, was directed by Brad Bird, Jan Pinkava, and written by Brad Bird. Remy, a rat with a unique cooking gift, wants more to his life than stealing food and surviving. Inspired by his favorite chef's motto, anyone could cook, he takes a risk and trusts a human to help him live out his dream to be a chef. This film earned $623 million on a budget of $150 million. This film stars Patton Oswalt, Lou Romano, Brad Garrett, Ian Holm, and Brian Dennehy. 
Ratatouille is easily one of Pixar's most artistic films on a cinematic level and not strictly looking at the animation, but this is one of the first films where they really took a dive at the look and feel of what real cinema can look like on an animated film. And we really hadn't seen it done like this before. And I love the look of Ratatouille. The characters are, are really well created. The lighting's phenomenal. And the entire city of Paris, France is so beautiful in every single shot. The entire movie looks like a painting. And obviously it's a, a film that takes place in France. So they probably thought, why not try to replicate the beauty of French cinema? This was their most visually stunning film to date, and they took all the techniques that they had been developing, and they tackled them, and they put them all together with Ratatouille, where they began firing on all cylinders, where the lighting doesn't just look like Toy Story, it looks like it's a film shot in real life. And I think it was a great idea to take it into an international setting, because they're switching it up, they're putting us in a new world. It's, still, it's a world that we, we know, but it's still unique for Pixar they haven't done before. And I think this movie is just really brilliant, uh, really beautifully made. And I think it's possible I think it might be my favorite Pixar movie. I think what sets it apart from the other films is the attention to detail is on another level in this where the food looks fantastic, like you said the lighting is amazing. Uh, and also when you look at the chefs in this film, there's so much research and love put into this movie where you can see that if you look closely, most of the chefs have like these little burns on their hands and arms, and these are things that happen to real chefs. Like you, if you look into any restaurant, the chefs in the in the kitchen will have burns all over them because they're encountering heat all the time. And I think that's an example of an attention to detail where the Pixar animators really put everything they had into making this film. And the concept is itself is hilarious. It's about a rat who's obsessed with cooking and wants to become a chef in a French restaurant. I love it. And Remy is, is this great character who's full of self-discovery, which is one of the main themes of the film. And he discovers this calling that he has to cook and he, he has to become a chef just like his idol, Guteau. And he sneaks into that restaurant in the beginning of the film and he starts cooking up that that pot of food, or the, the soup or the stew. And you can tell that when Remy's cooking, he's truly blissful, he's happy, he's, he's in a different world. And the reason for this is because Remy has an extremely acute sense of smell and taste where he's able to cook these amazing dishes because he can taste and smell better than anyone. And his family doesn't understand him because they look at food as a way of surviving. They eat whatever they can, there's scraps and trash, just whatever fills them up, where Remy looks at food as an art form and, and a craft and he they don't understand how he can his viewpoint and perspective and so there's this struggle between Remy where he loves his family but he also wants to be a chef and so he's torn between these two paths he can take in life and then the pull of being a chef and being in a kitchen uh, is too strong on him and, it, and he has to follow what he's he has to follow his heart and he follows his heart by basically taking over Linguini, who's this human <laughs> chef. And of all the chefs in the kitchen, he's probably the least interesting out of everybody. He's probably the least interesting character in the film. I mean, the, the food critic is super interesting. And all these other chefs, they're very unique, and they have unique looks and backstories, which I, I wish they explored more in the film. But, you know, we mostly get a lot of Linguini, who, who basically takes all the credit for, for Remy's cooking. And Remy uses him as basically a surrogate to be a chef in this French restaurant. Yeah, and it's really cute how Remy controls him like a robot by pull, tugging on different strands of hair to get him to do to get his arms and 
hands to do different things. So it's a really, he pretty much becomes like an operator for Linguini's uh, body. And it's kind of a, a an agreement they make that benefits both of them because Linguini on his own is a horrible chef and he seems to never be, never know what he's doing and he's always on the verge of being fired. And so having Remy help him cook keeps his job and get, get, uh, provides success for him in the kitchen and Remy gets to be able to cook, which is all he wants to do. And so he benefits from being able to do what he loves. And Remy doesn't even want the attention. He just wants to cook. Because that's the moral of the story is is pursuing your ambition and your life goal and, and your calling. And Remy, unfortunately, he's a rat. So he can't be a chef in a French restaurant. So he has to use Linguini to become the greatest chef in, in Paris. And again, he doesn't get any of the acclaim. Linguini gets all of that. And this ultimately is it's a perfect kid movie and a perfect adult movie at the same time. And once again, we get a great villain where we have Skinner, who is the head chef of the restaurant, and he's very dominating and, and domineering, and he doesn't like Linguini at all, and he wants to fire Linguini, but when he tastes the soup that Remy made, thinking that, Lingu- thinking that Linguini made it, it keeps Linguini on, the, in, uh, on staff. And so now this puts Linguini in an awkward situation where he has to keep Remy with him because Remy is actually discovered by the kitchen, and and Skinner orders him to get rid of the rat, and then Remy meets this crossroads where if he gets rid of the rat, then he'll never be able to cook well, and he'll get fired. And so he decides to keep Remy alive, and they partner up on this task of cooking in the kitchen and making beautiful food. But Skinner has this, this ulterior motive where he wants to use the food that Remy is cooking and sell it as frozen dinners to make a business out of it. And we also have another antagonist to the film who's Anton Ego, who's the, the arrogant film who's the arrogant food critic who's shown throughout the film as being this tall vampire like person <laughs> and he's got these dark sunken eyes and he's always upset and he never gives anyone a good review or a good rating. And he's actually got this incredible character transformation where he goes from being the cynical person to becoming very humble and honest and what we should all try to become at the end of the day in our lives. And Ego, when he tastes the food at the end of the film that Remy makes him, it's a very humbling experience just to watch and what and listening to the review he writes and hearing the words, it's it's pretty emotional and it it seems to articulate what we all feel when we go through that kind of transformation. Yeah, and Anton Ego is he's a great character and he has that famous line, he goes, I don't like food, I love it. If I don't love it, I don't swallow. So funny. And that food that Remy makes for him at the end of the film, the reason why it becomes such a powerful moment for him is because it it creates a connection to his childhood. And it reminds him of the ratatouille that his mother used to make. And then I think his entire life he's been very uh, negative and, and hard on chefs and his criticisms. And he lost sight of the whole point of food. And the whole point of food is to make a connection. And I think when he has this ratatouille, he remembers what he loved about food. Yeah, and just like that, I think at, at different points in our lives, we all kind of seem lost or in some sort of existential crisis. And we're trying to find our identities and our ambition and our paths in life. And Remy is the perfect metaphor that Nothing stopped him from following his dreams, despite being a rat. Nothing stopped him from doing what he felt he was put on earth to do, 
following his gift and pursuing his desire to be a chef despite being red. He does it. Yeah, that's the main theme of the movie that no matter who you are, you have the potential to do anything that you set your mind to. And Gusteau, in the film, his famous motto is anyone can cook. And that applies to Remy because he might be a rat, but he can cook better than anyone else in France. And no matter how small or insignificant you are, you can achieve anything. And it has a very happy ending. And, you know, um, if you haven't seen it, spoilers alert, Remy and, <laughs> all these movies. Remy and Linguini, they, they open up their own restaurant. And it's found out that Remy's a descendant of Gusto. And they, they get the good review from Ego. So it's a very positive ending, just like all Pixar films. And it's, it's very touching. Yeah, and Remy, he achieves the two things that he was at a crossroads about where with the new restaurant, he manages to keep his family close to him while still cooking and being a chef because he employs his family in the kitchen as his sous chefs. And so now he's able to stay with his family and be with the people, be with the rats that he loves while he's still able to pursue his his craft and his love of cooking. And I just, I just love this movie. It's really beautiful. It's got a great messages for kids and, and for adults. And I think Pixar just blew everyone away with the beauty of this film. And they just stepped up their game once again. Pet rats were kept at the studio in the hallway for more than a year so that animators could study the movement of their fur, noses, ears, paws, and tails. In France, where this movie is set, the the film broke the record for biggest debut for an animated movie. Brad Bird cast Patton Oswalt in this film after listening to one of his stand-up jokes in which he described the menu of some chain steakhouse he went to. Remy has 1.15 million hairs rendered, whereas Colette has 115,000 hairs rendered, and the average person has about 110,000 hairs. Next is WALL-E, which was released in 2008, directed by Andrew Stanton, Written by Andrew Stanton, Pete Docter, and Jim Reardon. Wally is the last robot on Earth, as all of humankind has left due to the Earth being uninhabitable, due to pollution and trash. He spends his days performing his duties of picking up trash one piece at a time. He becomes more than a little lonely until he is paid a visit by Eve, who then takes him on an adventure across the galaxy. This film stars Ben Burt, Alyssa Knight, and Jeff Garland film had a budget of $180 million and a worldwide box office of $521 million. It won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. And just like we were saying about every new Pixar movie is an improvement, with WALL-E, they really improved upon the size and scope of the world where in WALL-E you have these immense landscapes, whether it's on Earth or in space or on the station, and the lighting is incredible natural lighting from the sun and they've really crafted these gigantic landscapes and environments in this film yeah and smogginess and these skyscrapers that are just made of trash and all these intricate little pieces of trash and all these little just even those blocks that wally creates of trash are just so immense with detail and richness and color and and edges and it's incredible the the this film is beautiful despite obviously end of the world vibe look to it yeah, it's a dystopian future where humans have left Earth because it's uh, they deem it uh, unable to produce any kind of agriculture anymore, and so they've uh, they've left Earth to live on this giant space station. And over the past generations, humans have become so lazy and dependent on technology, where automation and robots literally do every single task for humans, and they've become lethargic and 
unmotivated to do anything and they become addicted to screens where they all have these holographic screens in front of them at all times where it is a, a, a brilliant commentary on the world today and it's actually even more relevant now than it was 12 years ago where we've become more addicted to screens than ever before and uh, we have become reliant on the ease and convenience which our technology has given to our lives whether it's like you don't even have to leave your house to get anything delivered and and purchasing anything super easy and just everything is it's so convenient and easy for mo- many of us that we've kind of lost our 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 work ethic and motivation to do things whoa wally's one of- <laughs> wally's a perfect film in my opinion it, it might be pixar's best and it's always been, I think, my favorite ever since I saw it, even just the first time. And, it, and it's ranked by many people as a top 100 movie of all time. And it has so many deep themes of consumption and consumerism and waste and pollution and addiction again to technology and destruction of Earth and, and climate change and, and, and how humans have a massive effect on nature. And what better way to capture the attention of kids and to relay these real issues on Earth than with this amazing story of this robot and space travel. Yeah, I agree. And and Wally is such a an adorable and lovable character. He's the last robot of his kind, and he's the last one performing these duties on Earth. And he's very innocent, and he all he can say is Wally. 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 And the even the first act of this film is pretty much all it's a silent movie. There's no dialogue really at all, but you emotionally connect with him. And Wally actually reminds me a lot of E.T., where they both become fish out of water, and they can't really communicate, and they have similar appearances, and I think they have the same personalities as well. Very lovable, uh, looking for a connection, and uh, looking for a new home. And I mean, when you think about the concept of this movie, it's it's plausible. I mean... The fact of the matter is there's 7 billion people on Earth. Almost all of us are throwing garbage away every single day. And so where does that all go? Does it catch up with us? And does this pollution catch up with us? And also, so- billionaires are working on creating state stations that can house millions of people in, in, in the middle of space. So who knows if this is a potential future of mankind? Because obviously this takes place uh, 700 years. Humans have been living on these spaceships. So who knows? And Again, like you said, Wally's pure, innocent. He's the last robot on Earth. He's still doing his duty and his job of making these clumps of of garbage. And you can see he's probably been doing it for 700 years. And he's got these massive skyscrapers of garbage he's collected. And despite being a robot, he seems to be filled with humanity and maybe even a soul. And he collects all these objects that he finds in this this in the world. And he whatever fills him with emotion and wonder, he collects and. He listens to music. He watches old movies. So he's got this very cute little personality inside his little tractor that he lives in. He also falls in love with Eve. It's a very cute love story. Yeah, and and that's the heart of the movie is uh, his love for Eve and her her kind of uh, avoidance of him. Yeah, it's, it's funny pretty cute. Be, yeah, they're completely different. They're polar opposites. You know, Wally's this like very old robot. He's rustic. He's he's rusting. He's he seems like he, he could shut down any day. And then Eve is immaculate and, and and advanced and clean and she's got rounded she's rounded she's she has no sharp edges or or corners to her and so she's obviously uh, was made in the present whereas wally looks to be as old as the trash she collects and they're a perfect pairing and this goes back to the pixar structure of formulating a story between 
two leads that are, are very different characters, but they uh, end up going on an adventure and uh, seeking to achieve a goal together. And all their interactions are hysterical and warm in the first act of the film, and it's Eve. Eve's kind of annoyed at him at first, and he's like dead. He's like uh, head over heels in love and obsessed with her. It's very cute. Yeah, and I love this movie because it's proof, and we talk about it a lot in, in multiple episodes, that you don't need dialogue to tell a story. Show, don't tell. That's what Pixar focuses on in this movie. And, you know, film depended on that for two decades before they started doing talkies. And it wasn't until the nineteen late 1920s, early 30s that they started having dialogue picked up in audio format. So you don't have to have dialogue to tell a scene and tell a story. And we know exactly what's going on between Wally and Eve and how Wally clearly has this immense crush on her and he's very shy and, and is trying to improve. And he's trying to impress her and win her over and win affection from her. And Eve's playing, you know, hard to get and being also very coy and very playful too. And annoyed that he's always pronouncing her name wrong. And Eva. Eva. And going back to that opening, the silent film-esque sequence without dialogue, it seems as though I would say the reason why Pixar movies are always so great is because the filmmakers are always pushing themselves to try something challenging. And they're always setting themselves up with this impossible task and what's more impossible than creating a, a, a silent first act in a children's movie, you know, but I think they always are, they always manage to overcome the challenges they set upon themselves and they made it work. They made a, a kids, a kids movie that has 20 minutes of without dialogue that kids love. And this movie does take a dark tone when uh, we're eventually in space and we're on the spaceship with all these humans and we see how glued they are to technology and how dependent they are on these corporations to feed them. They don't even chew their food anymore. They just suck them out of straws. They don't walk. They, they sit in these floating chairs hovering. And it's ironic. There's this pool at this resort, but no one is even swimming in the pool. It's just <laughs> there for show. And it's kind of sad. And it seems like, you know, this is the potential world that we could live in and where we're becoming more dependent and obsessed with technology in our lives. People are still spending all of their free time looking at screens in some capacity, so we are very much becoming more and more like these characters than ever before. Yeah, and one of the main themes of this film is being able to make your own choices in your life and understanding that you have a say in what happens, and it's really not until Wally gets on that ship and he starts interacting with these floating human beings, that these human beings, that they realize that they can look away from these screens and they can experience <laughs> something else and they can look out these windows that they have of the galaxy and of these stars and they can make decisions for themselves and decide to go back to Earth and they can decide on changing their lives. And also, I think the story uh, demonstrates the theme of not abandoning the Earth and not giving up on the environment because Wally discovers that seedling that's growing a little tiny sprout on it and his goal is to convince the humans that the earth is salvageable and they can make a new home on earth. It's You can grow food there. It's going to work out. And so I think that this film, yes, is talking about how destroying the environment is a, a future that is possible that we're heading towards, but also that we shouldn't just give up and there's ways to still salvage where we are, salvage our home. Yeah, planets are not consumer goods. You can't just throw it out and get a new one. We have one home. We have one planet. It's important to take care of it. Yeah. And like you said, not give up on it. And then Wally convinces the humans to go back to Earth, some of them, and, and they, they end up going and Eve gets there and they all arrive back to Earth and Wally's memory has been wiped, but he... But uh, <laughs> it's really sad. His personality is gone, and, and Eve is heartbroken because, you know, she, she loves Wally, and 
gives Wally a farewell kiss, but this sparks his memory and restores his original personality. It's a really great scene. Yeah, it's a really beautiful ending. And in terms of the production of the film, the reason why it looks so aesthetically beautiful and and incredibly close to realistic filmmaking is because uh, renowned cinematographer Roger Deakins uh, worked as a consultant on the film. No way. To make the film uh, look more realistic in terms of visual storytelling and more relatable to uh, real-life film production. Deakins is the man. Yep. And I love Wally so much because... He has this love for Eve, and he'll do anything for Eve. But also, as the film goes on, he decides to help and save humanity for no reason other than it being the right thing to do. He doesn't have to do that. He has nothing to gain. He's not human, but he does it anyways. I think he also does it because, like you said earlier, how he collects those little items. I think that Wally sees that there's still beauty in the earth. And I think he wants everyone else to see the potential. The voice actor for Wally is actually the same actor that did R2-D2. This film got six Academy Award nominations, tying Beauty and the Beast for the only animated film to do this. Several items and characters from past Pixar films can be found in Wally's trailer in the trash can scattered on Earth. If you look closely, you'll see Rex from Toy Story, a Buzz Lightyear lunchbox, Mike Wazowski from Monsters, Inc., and a Bug Zapper from A Bug's Life. Next, we have Up which was released in 2009, directed by Pete Docter, and written by Pete Docter and Bob Peterson. Carl Fredrickson, a balloon salesman, decides to fulfill a promise to his late wife of flying away to discover the forbidden Paradise Falls in South America. However, to his chagrin, a Boy Scout named Russell trying to earn his final badge tags along on his journey to the Lost World. This film stars Ed Asner, Christopher Plummer, Jordan Najai. This film grossed $735 million on a budget of $175 million and won two Oscars for Best Original Score and Best Best Animated Feature Film. I think Up is many people's favorite Pixar movie, and it's a very emotionally challenging film, and I'm sure was a bit of a gamble to take for Pixar because this film is essentially a way for children and even adults to cope with a lot of different emotions and events in life like grief, loss, life, death, and letting go. And it has very serious underlying tones that go beyond explaining to a child what happens when someone or something dies. And hearkening back to when we were talking about Toy Story 2 where Woody's basically facing his mortality and we're kind of getting that theme of dealing with death. Up really tackles that theme of death really head on. Yeah, Up is famous for its opening sequence, which opening sequence which depicts... Carl and Ellie's relationship where they meet as children, become married, and then slowly age, and then Ellie passes away, leaving Carl alone. And it's an incredibly emotional sequence where you can see the entire timeline of a a life in a marriage take place and end in loss and despair and sadness. And I think it's it was a really incredibly brave way to open a children's movie which had never been done before to tackle grief right away and also i think it's vital to telling the story because carl i mean on the surface carl is a grumpy old man and it's a cliche character but with this film they show you that there's a little more to the grumpy old man maybe he's grumpy for a reason you know this man lost his partner and he's alone and he misses her, and he's filled with despair, and so that's why 
he tends to be a, a grumpy and kind of a kind of a jerk. Yeah, if the if this movie doesn't make you cry at least like two or three times, you may not be human, especially the first ten minutes of this film. It's it's incredibly emotional and it this sequence of Carl in his wife in Ellie's life, it it kind of gives me the feeling of a memory or memories of someone looking back on their life with their most loved person and there's not much dialogue and we just have this beautiful score by Michael Giacchino, which might be one of the best parts of the film and it's very emotional. And this film was the second animated film to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. The first to do that since Beauty and the Beast in 1991. And the focus of the film is after this opening sequence is on Carl's life after Ellie's death. And he becomes a recluse, like you said, the grumpy old man. He holds out against the world. Um, and he keeps this house and this home basically as a memory of Ellie. He talks like Ellie's still there. Um, and he treats this this house that he owned with Ellie as kind of like a, a mausoleum to her. Yeah, and land developers in the city are trying to buy the house from him, and skyscrapers in the city has been built around this house, and it's the, it's the last house remaining, but he refuses to give it up because it was his and Ellie's house. They found it when they were, were children. It was an abandoned house, and they, they made a life in that home, and so he's, he refuses to ever give it up. Carl is also motivated to make it to paradise falls now paradise falls was ellie's dream they had both dreamed of becoming explorers like the famous months who was the most renowned explorer back then and uh he traveled to paradise lost in paradise falls to 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 find the the giant bird he had told people about to prove that it was real and then after months left he disappeared and never returned and so ever since they were children Ellie and Carl wanted to go to Paradise Falls and throughout their lives and their marriage together they always began a savings uh, of money to make the trip and time and time again they had to spend their savings on more dire needs uh, and so they were never able to to travel to Paradise Falls and ironically and tragically uh, the week before the week that Carl finally purchased the tickets to to fly to Paradise Falls. Uh, Ellie passed away, and so she was never able to go to Paradise Falls, which was her lifelong dream. And so what Carl does is he keeps his promise to Ellie, and he takes this house that they built together. And because he's a balloon man his whole life, he has all the equipment to do this. He makes a makeshift aircraft or airship using thousands of helium balloons to lift his house off the foundation and takes this house to Paradise Falls. And stuck with them, unbeknownst to him, is Russell, who's a, a local Boy Scout who's trying to get his, his final badge, which is assisting the elderly badge. <laughs> <laughs> this is an amazing effect of, of computer animation where all these balloons were actually made individually, and there are 10,297 balloons for shots of the house flying and 20,622 balloons for the liftoff sequence and a varying number in each of the other scenes. So it took an incredible amount of time and effort to make these realistic balloons and how they all interact with each other in this giant. And Russell is a unique character in the filmography of all of Disney's animated films because Russell's parents are divorced. And divorce was something that Disney has always avoided in their in its films. Throughout the entire filmography, they always if there's if there's a, a single parent in a household, 
uh, generally that other parent has passed away. They've always kept divorce away from their storytelling. And putting a divorce, a son of divorce in this film makes it more relatable to so many kids because we're children of divorce. And uh, children of divorce make up a, a pretty large chunk of people in America. And so I think that Disney throughout its history has avoided the the stigma of divorce, but they're pretty much avoiding the reality that not all relationships work out. And so I think it was a really great choice to have a, a, a child of divorce in this film. And Russell's motivation, again, like he says, to get that final badge because this will complete his mission as an Eagle Scout, I think, mm-hmm. which means that it would mean his father will go to a ceremony. And so really what he wants to do is he wants to spend time with his father. And he thinks that by getting this badge and completing his tasks, it will give him time to spend with his father. Or maybe at least in his head, that's what he thinks. That's really touching. And so they, both of these people, Russell and Carl, the person they love most in the world isn't in their life. So Carl lost Ellie and Russell's dad is absent in his life. They're both missing a, a part of their heart. Throughout the film, they both discover that they can fill that missing piece of their heart within each other where Carl becomes a, a fatherly figure to Russell and then Russell becomes uh, a new family member to Carl. And of course, these are very dark tones and serious serious uh, storylines, but we also get a ton of humor in this movie too and the dogs in this film are hysterical, especially Doug who has that collar that lets him speak, speak, <laughs> speak human and it's hysterical. It's, Squirrel! Squirrel, so many funny lines, and then we have that other like intimidating dog, and when he speaks through his thing, it's just like a very high pitched squeaky voice, so it's kind of <laughs> hysterical. And so they do balance out the tone of the seriousness with a ton of great humor. And, and Kevin the bird is really funny too. And then it's got another great villain where where months they end up finding months who's been living in Paradise Falls and seeking this this bird that he has been telling the world about that he he's trying to prove is real. And then we learn that the bird he's talking about is is probably Kevin, the bird that Carl and Russell ran into when they first landed on Paradise Falls. And this leads uh, to the plot of Muntz is trying to capture Kevin and, uh, and kidnap him, and Russell and Carl are trying to stop that from happening. And so Russell goes to f- save Kevin, but him and Carl like had a little fight, so Carl chooses to save his house instead because, again, this house represents Ellie. It represents their life, and he's not willing to let that go yet. So he does that instead of saving Kevin. And then Carl sees that Ellie really wanted Carl to move on. And he finds that note where Ellie's telling him that he has to continue living his life and move on and live a new adventure without her. And Carl eventually then gets rid of all this baggage of Ellie in the house and gets rid of all the furniture from inside the house. And So he's lighting, lightening the load of the house, but he's getting he's, rid of his memories. He's letting go he's of Ellie go. and moving to live back into the present moment of where he is in the world and living with these new people in his life with, and trying to save Kevin and, and Russell. And He eventually saves uh, Russell and Kevin from the grasp of months and they get away on the blimp while months falls to Paradise Falls where he'll be trapped. This is the ultimate metaphor of Carl finally letting go of his past and letting go of, of Ellie. And he's ready to move on and begin a new life and establish new relationships like Russell in his life. Yeah, it's not that he's forgetting Ellie and erasing her. He's just learning to not be obsessed with her and learning to let her go and to, to make room for new people and make room for new experiences. And again, no matter what happens in your life, 
and who passes in your life, it's a horrible thing, but your life is going to go on and the sun's going to rise the next day. And this movie is great because it really shows that it's okay, of course, to grieve. It's good to grieve and to mourn loss, but it's also important to move on and to keep living. And that's part of growing up and that's part of life and you can't avoid it. But life is still worth living. Yeah, and I think it's important for films like this to send that message to to kids and young people because it allows them to understand that it's something that everyone goes through and they're going to go through it. And they you can't allow grief and loss to to destroy your life and completely dominate you. And you have to everyone has to learn to overcome grief. And I think it's important for young people to learn that lesson and not to shelter them. And not to make kids always feel happy and, and comfortable and at peace, but their life has traumatic episodes, and I think it's important to show that to kids. During production, the animation department produced an average of four seconds of animation per week. That's how complicated this film was to make. Wow. It's a beautiful movie. Before the Up's release date, Pixar granted uh, a make-a-wish from 10-year-old Colby Curtin to see the film before she died. Colby had been diagnosed with cancer and was too sick to go to a theater to see the film. And so a Pixar employee flew to the Curtin's house with a DVD of the finished film and screened it for her and her family. And Curtin died seven hours later, shortly after seeing the film. I'm tearing up right now. That's, that's really sad. And that sad note is an end to this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast, episode 39 on Pixar, the history of how it was formed, in the first 10 films in their amazing filmography. Pixar changed the landscape of animation and filmmaking, and uh, they continue to turn out incredible films in our master storytellers. Thank you so much to everybody who tuned into this episode, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening in your car, at work, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us. Hit the notification bell so you know when new episodes are coming. Stay tuned and be aware of our new movie poster contest, especially that Star Wars limited edition Empire Strikes Back poster. You got to check it out. You got to win it. We got some really cool episodes coming up. Yeah, so stay tuned for more. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you so much. Take care.